Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. In this episode, we bring you a phone call hosted by Sharmin Mosavaramani, head of the Investment Strategy Group for the Consumer and Investment Management Division and Chief Investment Officer for Wealth Management at Goldman Sachs. Sharmin talks with a group of business leaders about the impact of coronavirus on the real estate market. This call was recorded on April 24th, 2020. for joining us on this 10th in a series call on the impact of COVID-19, in this case specifically on the real estate market. If you could please turn to page two, we have provided an overview of today's call. As usual, we'll provide an update on COVID-19. We will then talk about the uh, performance of various components of the public real estate market, uh, given that at least we have good data on that. We will then turn to our three guest speakers, uh, Alan Kava, co-head of the Merchant Banking Division at Goldman's Real Estate Group in the Americas, Ralph Rosenberg, Global Head of Real Estate at KKR, and Roy March, Chief Executive Officer at Eastdale Secured. Usually we don't go into detail on people's backgrounds, but we thought it would be worthwhile here just to highlight very briefly the experience and breadth and depth of the expertise of our guest speakers. So if you look at page three, for example, for Alan, we've provided his 25 years of experience, 50 billion in real estate equity and debt strategies since 2012, and currently $38 billion in assets under management across real estate, equity, and credit. But also you can see below the broad range of investment strategies. Uh, on page four, we have highlighted uh, the background for Ralph Rosenberg, who was a partner at Goldman Sachs actually until 2006. At KKR, they have $12.7 billion in AUM, assets under management across Americas, Europe, and Asia. And they also, in aggregate, have owned, uh, either own or have lent on $68 billion of real estate assets. And again, a broad range of strategies. Roy March is with over 42 years of experience in real estate at Eastdale Secured, a leading real estate investment banking company. Just to give you a sense of the uh, various activities and volumes that he sees, in 2019 alone, they had over $170 billion of global capital market transactions, including the largest private market sale. So a lot of expertise and breadth and depth. Let's just briefly touch upon uh, the latest on uh, COVID-19. On page six, we have our usual updated exhibit. Uh, the numbers become stale every time uh, by the next uh, day or two. We are currently at 2.72 million reported infections worldwide and 190,000 fatalities. But as you can see, it looks like the uh, growth rates have actually peaked. On page seven, we highlight a bit of information on the U.S. It looks like the U.S. has also peaked. Uh, the increase that we see is due to California doing a lot more testing. On the right-hand side, we update you with the uh, rates in New York. Governor Cuomo has released a study that the infection rate in New York City uh, may be about 21.2%, and that implies a much lower fatality rate. In the past, we've shown you numbers 
that started at around 2% and have continuously increased on a global basis to numbers like 6%, but the estimate here is that it may be less than 1% at about 05 In Europe, it also appears that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. If you look at page 8, the European CDC has announced that they believe the first wave has passed its peak. And in fact, in some places like Germany and Australia, Austria, you see that uh, lockdowns and social distancing measures are actually being relaxed, some people going back to school, and we show you the uh, peaking of infections in Italy and Spain. Before we turn to the private real estate uh, topic, we thought it would be helpful just to give you a little bit of an update on performance in the public markets where data is readily available. If you could turn to page 9, we show you the performance of the S&P 500 year-to-date, compare it to the Wilshire REIT index at minus 24.1, so about 11% underperformance, and then also home builders at down about 30%. And we thought it was worth highlighting for you the fact that our colleagues in global investment research are actually forecasting a decline in housing starts for the second quarter from 1.4 to 1.47 from 1.47 million in the first quarter to 1.13 million in the second quarter so quite significant on a global basis looking more broadly uh, on the right hand side we show you the performance of various regions based on various international REITs indexes so the united kingdom down 33% and Asia x Japan down 19%. But across the board, REITs have underperformed broader market indexes. As we show you in the last bullet point, uh, the overall market is down 28%. The global REIT index relative to the MSCI World Index at down 15.7%. There's been sizable dispersion across subsectors in the REITs market. If you look at page 10, you can see with shelter-in-place guidelines, uh, areas like shopping center, hotels, and malls have all uh, dropped by more than 50%. On the other hand, you can see data uh, centers and towers actually up, and industrials just down 7%. If we look at valuations for REITs, uh, there are obviously two different ways of looking at it. One would be relative to the S&P 500. The other would be relative to B corporate bonds. If you look at page 11, we show that it is somewhat similar in terms of earnings yield relative to the S&P 500. We're talking about 5.2% relative to 5.5. However, when we look at cap rates implied by the REIT prices and compare it to triple B corporate bonds, obviously they're different, in, totally different, you still see a very big spread. Uh, it's the highest we have on record since 1998. And so relative to that, it looks much cheaper. Let's wrap up looking at page 12 with the spreads in CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed securities. On the left-hand side, we show you spreads at about 1,000. That compares to triple B corporate bonds triple B minus corporate bonds at about 400, so it gives you a sense of the spread. And then on the right-hand side, we just show you data from our colleagues that gives you a sense of delinquencies. In terms of looking at this number, we've combined uh, delinquencies not just greater than 30 days, but also less than 30 days, given the assumption that anything that is starting to become delinquent will probably become delinquent 
for more than 30 days, especially among hotels, retail, and mixed-use properties. So with that, I'd like to turn it to Alan Kava. Alan, uh, given what you are seeing in the marketplace, there are limited transactions. Can you just uh, give us a sense of what you see and how does that affect your sense of what's going on in the private markets? Sure. <clears throat> Thanks, Charmaine. Um, look, the answer to the question is not much is going on. Uh, you know, if you turn to page 13, um, you, know, you can see that and I'm try- I try to lay these pages out so people can get a sense as to what we're seeing right now in the market before we get into the discussion of where everything is going. Um, on the equity side, you know, transaction volume has really fallen off a cliff. On that chart on the left side of the page, um, you see it's off about 80% uh, April so far, um, year over year. Uh, on the right side of the page, uh, CMBS originations, which, which got off to a really strong start at the beginning of the year, have now plateaued, and we're seeing you know, virtually no CMBS originations in the market. Um, you know, bottom line is, you know, the debt and equity investors have, you know, hit the pause button, right? And they've exited the market for now. Um, you know, you may ask what people are doing. My guess is, and as we are, most people are playing defense, right? We're trying to, we're all trying to triage our portfolios, trying to understand where the problems are, where they're going to come up, uh, which tenants um, need relief, whether it's, you know, abatements or deferrals, uh, where we're going to have debt issues on our existing assets, either, you know, covenant compliance or, or maturity dates. Um, and, you know, where you have development assets, you know, can you actually even build? Because um, most developments in, around the country are shut down for now. Um, so, you know, bottom line is, you know, people are really playing defense. Um, I think the one encouraging thing I see, you know, as we've been going through some of these problems, and it's not really, you know, it's not one, uh, one remedy suits all, um, we're seeing people actually being flexible, right? I mean, I think people sort of get it that they have a social responsibility and people are being good citizens and working with their tenants, working with their lenders, uh, where, you're, where you're actually a lender, you're working with your borrowers to come up with solutions and provide that flexibility because obviously nobody saw this coming. So to me, that's, that's, you know, that's encouraging about, you know, the way everyone's behaving in a, in a obviously a, a political, uh, you know, polarized country at this point. Uh, are you seeing the same kind of uh, dispersion as we're seeing in the performance of public REITs? You have some exhibits on cap rates. So if you could just think about the different sectors. And also you commented that typically things revert uh, at, with a declining interest rate environment based on history. Do you expect that again this time? Yeah, look, we have to draw our conclusions from what we've seen in, in past cycles, whether it was um, you know, the financial crisis in 2008-2009 or the dot-com bust. Um, you know, the expectation is that, you know, we're going to experience some period, um, in the case after the financial crisis, it was, a few, you know, two and a half years, basically, uh, a, a period of dislocation in the markets where you're going to see cap rates widen out. And, that you know, that makes sense, right? I mean, capital becomes scarcer, and, you know, the, the risk premium associated with capital um, becomes, becomes higher, right? Um, people want visibility into how assets are going to perform in the future, and we don't have that visibility right now. So, you know, the risk premium is going to go up um, and cap rates are going to, are going to, are going to widen. Um, also, because there's this whole, like, kind of perception that if an asset is trading in the market now, it sort of has to, it has to trade, it has to sell, because there's somewhat, something else going on, whether it's distress um, or, or an owner is facing uh, And buyers sense that. Um, and as, as a result, aren't going to be willing to pay those low cap rates. Um, so, you know, this all makes sense. And, and our guess is, over time, and that's the magic question, how long is this going to take, um, those cap rates will revert to that sort of 
20-year downward trajectory that we've seen that basically correlates to, you know, the, the downward trajectory of interest rates. Um, you know, my personal view is, you know, this time around, and I'm hopeful that, you know, that, that period of dislocation is, is relatively shorter than it was after the financial crisis. And I think, you know, one of the big game changers here is just the fact that, the, you know, the banks themselves are in an entirely different position than they were, you know, 12 years ago. Right? The banks are well capitalized. They do have capital. They're sitting on the sidelines now. But as soon as we have this visibility, my hope and my expectation is that there'll be liquidity returned to the market. Um, and, the, and the banks, which who basically provide the rocket fuel to transaction volume, uh, will be back in the market. Um, and I think that could be a, a big game changer here in terms of shortening that, that duration of dislocation. Alan, um, referring to these cap rates, uh, when we had looked at the uh, market implied rates and compared the spread to uh, triple B corporate bonds, we had seen that huge widening up to 2.8. Obviously, at some point, as you say, that has to come down. What explains the fact that it's even worse uh, than the global financial crisis by nearly 30%? Well, I think you know the, the, the speed and velocity and the magnitude of how fast it's hit. I mean, nobody saw this coming. So, um, you know, I think that account, accounts for some of it. Um, and I think sort of the, you know, you know, many people said this is going to be a, a, a deeper recession, but a quicker recession. I think people are, are fearful, right? Fear has set in. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's responsible for it. Um, if we could please turn to hospitality. As you said, everything has happened as what we refer to as at warp speed. Uh, global travel has basically ground to a halt. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the hospitality sector and how the hospitality sector will actually survive? Because even if the economy recovers, will we see enough use, especially of bigger hotels with conferences and business activities? I hope so. Um, look, these numbers are eye-popping, right? When you look at how quickly occupancy and and RevPAR, which is just you know the, it stands for revenue per available room, um, have fallen off, you know, in the in the month of April, right? So. You know, last 28 days, 68% to 22% occupancy, and this is across all different um, subsectors of the hospitality industry nationwide, and likewise down 80% um, in terms of in terms of repar. Um, look, hospitality, even in the last downturn, got hit the hardest, and it got hit the fastest. Right? It's the it's the fastest to go down. It's also ultimately the quickest to come back. Right? Because basically, you know, hospitality or you know, are rents that reset every night. Right? And so as soon as the economic outlook becomes, you know, becomes brighter, you know, consumer corporate confidence return and people start to travel again. Now, I think it's a little bit different this time because we have the extra added issue of you know, health and safety issues. Right? So make it, it makes it a little bit more complicated than flipping a switch and saying, okay, everybody back to work. You know, is everybody going to start traveling again? You know, my guess is not. Right? So all this is dependent upon... You know, finding a therapy, an effective therapy, or, or a vaccine for um, for for COVID. Um, but my guess is, you know, we will we will see a rebound in hospitality relatively quickly when you know we have the all clear from a from a health and safety issue or health and safety safety perspective. And then, what about the retail sector? If we could turn to page sixteen, um, you have some good uh, understanding of what was happening before the yeah, retail so in the retail sector and what now. Look. Retail has been a tough sector even before COVID, right? I mean, there were a lot of headwinds in this industry. Even and these are, these numbers on page um, 16 are all pre-COVID. Um, you know, there were an expectation of over 170 million square feet of 
permanent store closures in the United States this year, right? Most of this is a result of being you know, over-retailed, and I felt for a long time that we, we have been over-retailed, but a lot of this is a result of, you know, e-commerce, right? So even prior to COVID, um, this was a, a, an industry or sector in real estate that, um, you know, I was shying away from personally and, and as an institution we did within, within the merchant bank. Um, look, I don't think COVID has changed my view, right? Um, you know, I, I've been holed up at home now for six weeks, and I can understand, and I, and I appreciate the benefit of maybe an ex experiential retail uh, experience. Um, look, I do think the crisis is going to hasten, you know, hasten the demise, if you will, of those second and third and fourth tier malls and markets, right, because we are over-retailed. We have seen this, con you know, um, continuing for some time now, for several years. Um, and, we, you, know, you know, you and I, Charmaine, were having a conversation last week where I think we're seeing even the last holdouts um, who, you know, who, who, who didn't shop online have to shop online, right, as a matter, you know, just a, a matter to get basic goods and services delivered to them. So, you know, you know is this the, the final nail in the coffin of the retail industry? You know, I don't think so. I think there'll be some survivors, but I think it's going to, you know, this continued downward trajectory in the retail sector is going to continue. As we showed earlier, the industrial sector has done uh, much better relative to uh, retail and other sectors. If we could turn to page uh, 17, um, what's exactly going on in the industrial sector and how is, what are your expectations for it going forward, just given your comments about uh, retail and e-commerce? Right, well, look, if retail is the net loser in all this, um, industrial is going to be a net winner, right? Um, you know, the, obviously, the, you know, the continued rise in e-commerce and 3PL, third-party logistics businesses, just getting goods and services moved quickly and efficiently to the ultimate consumer, you know, has obviously become a lot more important in this environment, right, and, and more utilized. Um, so I do think this, you know, these trends are going to continue. Um, you know, we are going to have, um, you know, robust, you know, the, the Amazon nation of the world, if you will, um, uh, and, and I think that's going to continue. And I think this is an industry that's, um, you know, poised for growth, you know, even during the downturn, but certainly following uh, during the recovery. If we look at the left-hand uh, exhibit on page 17, uh, is there a sense that there's actually a shortage? What, what is the sense that what should we interpret from that? It's tight. Most markets are, are pretty tight uh, with shortage. Um, yeah, look, industrial assets aren't that complicated to build. They take a relatively short period of time. Um, you know, typically a year. They're not, you know, it's not a complicated, con you know, construction. Um, you know, is there a shortage? Um, shortage can be filled pretty quickly, um, but it's a, it, it's it's a tight market and it's growing. And you know, the biggest part of that market that's growing is this, you know, this last mile. Um, you know, getting assets to consumers quickly. So having last mile assets, you know, in and around the you know, major metropolitan areas that can move stuff from major distribution centers. Um, quickly to the consumer within, you know, within a 24-hour period. Um, but it's a tight market, and I think we, we all think it's going to continue to be very tight in terms of um, occupancies. And, and, you know, while we might not have that robust rent growth over the next year or two, um, you, know, during a, you know, during a recession, if, that, if that's really what happened and how long it takes to recover, um, we do think, you know, that occupancies will remain strong, and this is, this is an industry that um, we like, on, you know, on the forward. And what about the office sector, especially given that we're all sheltering in place and people are debating whether there will be more demand for office space because people will do social distancing or will there actually be less demand because more people can work from home? 
you know, look, I think office is the most interesting of all the sectors, right? And you just mentioned a couple of competing um, dynamics. Um, look, you know, office leasing, leasing itself has declined in the first quarter. Um, obviously, people can't, aren't working. People are holed up at home, and they can't get to, uh, you know, there's not that immediate need to, to be in an office. Um, you know, but it, it's complicated, right? There's, there, there, you know, the competing, you know, the competing dynamics are, you know, we've got downward pressure coming from the fact that many tenants just won't survive, right? So we've got a lot of small businesses and small office tenants that ultimately won't survive, which will create additional vacancy in the market. Um, we also have that, you know, the work from home, uh, you know, uh, you know, thing that, we're, that that everyone's doing right now, right? And, and it's actually proven to be pretty effective, you know, for a lot of the service industries. Um, you know, uh, I, I was talking to you know our, some of our law firms, um, some of the people internally at, at GS, and you know, in terms of productivity, they're saying productivity has actually increased, um, and that billable hours have you know have gone up. Um, and so, you know, if, if people can have their you know their their labor pool work effectively from home and and not skip a beat, you know, maybe they don't need 500,000 square feet of office space in Midtown. Maybe they need. 350,000, right? So that all that combined is going to put, obviously, downward pressure on occupancy and downward pressure on rents. Then you have the other side of it, which is, you know, over the last several years, there's been this whole move towards densification, where um, the average, you know, space per employee has, 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 has shrunk. Um, and, you know, people sitting on top of each other or, in, in, you know, basically in, in floating pools where they don't actually don't, don't even get assigned a specific seat where they can come into an office and plug and play from any, from anywhere with somebody sitting you know three or four feet away from them. Um, I think you know to a certain extent we have to rethink that, and we're, at least in the near term, as people return to the office and, um, and people need additional space between people. Um, you know, look, I think also think that maybe certain markets will be the net beneficiaries. So, you know, likewise, if people have their employees working from home in this environment and they're doing it as productively. Maybe when we come out of this and we get to the other side of, of the crisis, we return to, the, to work, corporates think, hey, if I can have my people, people working effectively from home, maybe I can have them working effectively in a higher value location or in a cheaper location like, a, you know, not New York City, but a, but a Dallas or an Atlanta, right? Maybe I have my CEO in New York um, and I have my, my, you know, the bulk of my people in a high value location where, you know, the rent is cheaper, I need you know, I can, I can get just as much space cheaper, and I can pay my employees less, right? So um, there are lots of dynamics here. I, look, I think it's going to be interesting. It's, it's early to tell how this is going to play out. Um, you know, my view is, I, you know, personally, I'm, you know, I can't wait to get back to the office because, you know, I like the collaborative, you know, energy that's in an office space, and I, I'm hopeful that um, we all wind up back in our offices shortly. Um, what about uh, housing for people? Both uh, we have some data on multifamily sector on page 19, but also any insights on just regular housing market, uh, given the fact that our colleagues in GIR are forecasting a much lower level of housing starts. Yeah, so on the multifamily side, look, some of these numbers on page 19 are surprising to me. Actually, we um, we anticipated uh, you know a much higher you know default rate or. Uh, you know, or, or request for uh, deferral or abatement of rents, um, given sort of the, you know, the, the rapidity in which the, you know, the downturn occurred and the unemployment numbers going up so high. Um, actually, April was okay, right? Um, you know, we're slightly behind um, um, March and slightly behind last year in terms of rent collection. So generally speaking, people are, are paying their rent, um, which is obviously a good thing. Um, we're seeing actually less move-outs 
people who would schedule to move out maybe to into a into a home or to a maybe a a better apartment or a more upscale apartment. Um, so the, the pace of move-outs has also declined, um, which is good. I, I look, I think, when I think back about after the financial crisis, you know, the, the, the big beneficiary of the financial crisis was the multifamily market, right? So all of a sudden, people had this you know, rapid decline in wealth. They couldn't afford to buy homes anymore or, or make down payments on homes. It was harder to get credit, um, and we saw you know, the multifamily industry really was in a relatively short period of time after the crisis coming to its own. Um, and we had rapid growth in many markets. We had new markets that, you know, proved to be, you know, sort of the, the, the big growth markets in the U.S. over the last 10 years. And, you know, and that sort of continued. And I think multifamily, you know, will be a beneficiary ultimately when we come out of the downturn um, or start to come out of the downturn, um, you, know, in, in, you know, in comparison to some of the other sectors we talked about. And uh, single-family homes? Um, don't have a comment there. Um, I think it's going to be more difficult, right? I think it's going to be more difficult to buy a home. You know, wealth has evaporated. Um, we don't do single-family um, within the merchant bank. Um, so maybe Ralph or Roy have a view on that, but my guess is um, credit's going to be difficult to get, and people are not going to have that 20% or 25% down payment. So I think new you know, housing starts are going to hurt, and I think home buying is going to suffer for, for a short period of time. Thank you very much, Alan. Ralph, if we could now turn uh, to you, obviously we got, get a good sense of the type of distress. Is this actually an opportunity uh, for you to raise uh, funds and our clients to invest in, or are the public REIT markets and public CMBS market just as attractive? Uh, Charmaine, I, I would say from a fundraising perspective, you can sort of separate the world into two categories those investors who have uh, available liquidity and who think about a dislocation like this as a opportunity to be tactical and to lean in and to put money to work where there might be uh, pressures on values that create opportunities that you wouldn't normally see in a regular way market. And then the second category of investors would be those who are more inclined to be defensive and are more worried about the quote-unquote denominator effect across not only how it affects real estate allocations, but also allocations to other risk assets. So I think it's a little bit of a tale of two cities. I've been spending most every day uh, talking to anywhere between two to four of my uh, LPs on one-on-one -on -one conversations. And uh, I would say that uh, it's quite uh, dispersed in terms of the the mindset, in terms of uh, how those who want to lean in uh, have the flexibility to lean in, and those who are more fully invested and are focused on the denominator effect are waiting to see. When you asked about the the public markets and the private markets, I'll go back to one comment Alan made. Um, in the in the private markets, while many of us are, are positioning ourselves to transact, meaning staying in front of the relevant intermediaries like Roy or talking directly to CEOs of both public and private companies about their needs for liquidity or whether or not it's waiting to see whether or not the, the lending community uh, does at some point uh, change from a collaborative partnership stance with borrowers to more of a capitulation behavior where they're forcing liquidity uh, at the asset level, P 
people like us are sort of staying, what I would call uh, hanging around the hoop and staying, staying relevant. But from a practical perspective, as Alan said, it's impossible to transact. There, there are no transactions, and the, the, the lending community hasn't even uh, opened back up to provide financing to investors like us. So that basically forces um, the, the, the pivot to not only looking at how the public markets are pricing real estate risk, but also that is an area where you have the ability to transact. And so my funds globally have the ability to invest in public uh, securities. And so we've been spending the overwhelming amount of our time from an activity perspective, uh, analyzing and focusing on public capital structures. And within the uh, public sector, when you're looking at the different uh, subsectors that Alan was talking about, from retail to hospitality, et cetera, uh, where do you see the greatest opportunities? And then within, on a global perspective within the world, U.S., Europe, and Asia, are you focusing on any particular uh, region? Sure. So uh, I'll, I'll answer your first question with sort of my philosophy on both investing in public securities as well as in private opportunities. And that philosophy is that we're living in a world right now where the dispersion of outcomes in terms of how people are going to behave and how that behavior translates into economics in any real estate asset class is so uncertain that the dispersion of outcomes is, is incredibly broad and therefore you should be paid a lot to take risk, whether or not that's in public market activity or in private market activity. For example, Charmaine, when you made the comment that the spread between cap rates and I think BAAs is at an all-time wide, I think that's really because there is so much uncertainty in the numerator, meaning there's so much uncertainty in in the the NOI or the, the cash flow stream that's being effectively capitalized that it's reflecting this very um, seemingly you know, widespread. But I think we just don't know how the behavior of, of shoppers are going to trans uh, transpire going forward, how travel is going to transpire, as Alan mentioned, the use of office space is going to transpire, et cetera. And so long-winded way of saying, I think you got to get paid a lot to take that risk. And as you pointed out and Alan pointed out, uh, the extremes of the of the of the sectors. On the one hand, the hospitality and retail, where nobody is is actually literally using th those those uh, industry groups by definition, has crushed those sectors. And on the other hand, the most defensive, predictable, demand-driven sectors, such as data centers, uh, as you point out, are are performing quite well. So when I think about where to invest in the public markets, to me, it's all about can you deconstruct the actual fundamental real estate asset base within these companies and then assess what that dispersion of outcomes might might look like going forward to effectively construct a P&L and then ask yourself whether or not the public market is paying you fairly to take that risk. And what I would tell you just in historic context, I think after the global financial crisis, the the similar indexes that you've quoted in this deck were down 2x the, 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 the index uh, peak to trough that we've seen in this market. And I think that that's sort of reflective of my bias that 
you might see another downdraft here in the public markets, uh, broadly speaking, and, and a lot more volatility in these real estate names because there's so much uncertainty at the underlying asset level. And just remember, in the public markets or in the private markets, real estate value is created, really created, where there's compression between occupancy and supply. And if occupancy drops in any one of these asset classes by even 4 or 5%, that has a huge impact on the ability of a landlord to effectively push rent on the marginal uh, leasing of space or renting of an apartment unit. And that translates into how you can effectively uh, sort of mute value creation over a long period of time. So my long-winded uh, answer to your question, Charmaine, is that um, I wouldn't get, I wouldn't get um, sucked into to, to, to thinking that, quote-unquote, it looks cheap. That's my view. On your question around geography and, and what's happening around the world, you know, one of the great things about our, our industry is that you know, every uh, country has different uh, macro uh, trends, both opportunities and challenges, and every uh, economy has interesting themes that come out of those macro trends. And so it's hard to, um, to generalize, but in parts of the world where there's an emerging middle class and there's a lot of economic growth and population growth that's, that's um, going to transpire over the next several uh, years or decades like Asia, uh, you can see more, more optimism and more underwriting of, of growth at the real estate level. And then in certain economies where there's demographic challenges and an aging population and economic, um, uh, not a lot of economic growth, you have to have un other assumptions that, that effectively uh, reflect that. So I would say that you know, globally, uh, it's, a, it's a macro uh, business, but it's a micro uh, uh, execution when you apply the macro to the micro. As we talk about changes in different sectors, uh, one of the issues the CDC has also pointed out is density, that density might contribute to higher rates of transmission, which is understandable. Do you think that will push people uh, a little bit out of cities, back into the suburbs, and what does it actually mean for uh, retail and strip malls and things like that that are more prevalent in the suburbs versus in cities? Sure. Um, I'll sort of... Uh tag on to what Alan said about the the trends that we had already been seeing, you know, pre-COVID-19 with respect to retail, uh, and that this is really just an acceleration of, of a trend that, that already existed. Uh, I think that is true of, of retail for sure. I actually think it's also um, true for the the migration to uh, innovation cities into warmer weather climates and to, as Alan mentioned in his comments about uh, housing, to more affordable uh, places to live with, with better uh, lifestyles. I think that trend was already an investable trend uh, pre-COVID-19, and I think that uh, that trend will continue uh, when we, we all surface from, from this uh, crisis. Having said that, I am not personally. I'm not. I'm not a believer that you know this is the end of the big, uh, the, the big mega city like New York or London or Hong Kong or, or Singapore. Um, I always uh, remind people that memories uh, are, are are short and that there are incredible qualities and attributes of major cities that you cannot replicate, even in some of these smaller innovation cities around culture and 
and and restaurants and museums and you know sporting events and all that kind of stuff um and and i think that uh over some period of time behavior will come back to a level of normalcy but it might just be that uh that the trend to move to these smaller growing cities for corporates basically from a real estate perspective um contributes to a an environment where there there is not the compression that I referred to earlier that there's not the rent compression and occupancy compression that creates a lot of value in real estate either in residential or or in commercial and I think people just have to be aware that 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 could be a long-term negative consequence that comes out of this movement to smaller cities that the the, the, the trade of like playing the big mega cities from a real estate perspective historically was always like the flavor of choice for the for for big uh, players in real estate, and and that's because they they always implicitly felt that there would be this compression that created this this value in in a high barrier to entry location. I'm not sure that compression is going to exist in the same way going forward. Ralph, given the limited number of deals and uh, yet you have to mark your funds to market and Mm -hmm. investors would like to know your LPs, you talked about what the estimated value of their assets are. How do you actually put value on such a broad range of assets uh, on such a broad global basis? Sure. So, I mean, every uh, real estate private equity uh, GP, you know, has their own own philosophy on this. We, We actually... Uh, outsource all of our valuations to uh, to a third party uh, globally, um, and and that sort of uh, takes the the arbitrariness uh, or, or uh, cognitive dissonance or you know bias uh, away from you know the GP, which I think is health, a healthy discipline, a health, healthy discipline for for any manager. Um, most um, most uh, valuation services use a discounted cash flow analysis that is sort of a five to 10 year uh, modeling exercise and compares that analysis with public market benchmarks. At least that's what, what our provider does. And I think what you w- will all see is that uh, the Q1 um, exercise, which was obviously done as of March 31st, you know, didn't really have any, um, you know, intuition around whether or not this recovery was going to be V-shaped or, or a small U or a deep U, et cetera. And so um, I think people will, will probably feel like uh, the March 31 marks are, are stale, meaning that, that they, they were too um, reflective of, of cash flows that would bounce back quite quickly uh, if there was going to be much diminution at all. And I think my guess is that as we get to June 30th, that that valuations will, will, will come down uh, e, uh, even more than what you might see at the end of March. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Ralph. Uh, Roy, if we could please now turn uh, to you and look at page 20. Um, given the broad perspective you have with all activities, we've just put some highlights uh, with Alphabet, Google's parent, uh, moving away from a pretty significant uh, real estate um, project that they were considering uh, Blackstone abandoning a deal, a sale not going through in New York City. Um, what is your sense of uh, activities in the U.S., Europe, and Asia? And are there any deals of any scale actually happening? 
Yes. <clears throat> well, first of all, thank you very much, and I uh, hope everybody's staying healthy and uh, and sheltering in place and keeping that good social distancing away so we can get back to it again. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the, the traditional, or as, as Ralph put it, regular way deals for debt and activity, uh, uh, debt and equity activity has dropped precipitously, uh, needless to say. Transactions that were actually priced and committed in, in most instances where there was hard money deposits put up, those transactions continued, and that's why you saw us kind of drift across the the finish line, if you will, by the end of March, as we had started off with a very robust uh, level of activity in the institutional market, those transactions over $25 uh, million. Um, and there are there were exceptions of people walking on hard money deposits, as you point out, and those transactions either there was a feeling that the underlying characteristics of the asset had dropped further than the deposit had, or they w were going to require a financing uh, element that was not available in the market as the debt markets had shut down simultaneously. And then around hospitality, where um, so much of it was built upon, you know, kind of the forward-looking uh, returns. And and uh, so those, uh, obviously, where there was hard money up, um, um, were either put on pause, delayed, and or um, went away completely. All of that, candidly, is kind of yesterday's news um, as we think about it. We're, we try to be uh, more science uh, than sentiment-driven, although you need to keep the sentiment in mind as it relates to the demand side of it all. And what we've seen is this wave, if you will, of uh, the have-tos uh, versus the like-to uh, transactors. Now, the, the and, and, and there's more of a distinction today, or as you put it, dispersion, than we've seen um, in recent times with the availability of capital and uh, what had been a fairly um, um, sound, fundamental uh, supply-demand side of it all, as well as a, a very attractive capital markets environment. The first wave of this was in the mortgage REITs, where um, there, with the uh, uh, dislocation of the financial markets prior to um, the Fed stepping in, uh, there were a tremendous number of these um, entities that were faced with margin calls as a result of the way that they had financed some of their uh, underlying uh, commitments and, and loans. And so they were, uh, they, they, it was a mad rush to liquidity um, that ultimately, with people pushing for cash, and again, this was prior to the Fed stepping in, and even since then, because there there is some sentiment that there might be another leg down in all this, but that, those were the have-tos, and that's where the, the initial opportunity was. So lots of trades in uh, in the in the uh, uh, debt side of the business, um, and as people were looking for liquidity, and then on the hospitality side, um, in particular, then these are the have-tos, if you will. Um, the travel ban, stay-at-home. Most of these hotels have been closed. There's a significant burn rate of anywhere from uh, thousand to fifteen hundred dollars uh, per room per month um, that's existing there prior to debt service with these uh, assets closed down. So there is no question uh, that those are uh, uh, groups that have to ultimately um, figure out how to, uh, in essence, come up with the working capital. So we're beginning to see um, distress, uh, not only in that space, but trades that are going on um, today that uh, ultimately will come out of this in not a regular way basis, very, very curated and in, in, in a placement basis. And then you've got the retail and the store closings and the non-payment of rent. And 
it, what it's done um, is as a result of this triage, uh, most of this repo financing were large money center banks. Uh, a lot of the hospitality lending was large money center banks, um, the retail lenders um, uh, for the stores themselves, money center banks. And it put most of these large banks candidly on the sideline into triage, um, dealing with forbearance requests uh, and pulling candidly originators from um, uh, the front lines to asset management roles. Um, and the same is true as you get through um, um, some of the um, life insurance companies as well. So um, the debt markets um, and the CMBS market shut down absolutely and completely. Um, there's um, uh, discussion around and some early, um, very, very secure um, CMBS transactions that are likely to occur here in the near term to try and, uh, in, in essence, um, refuel um, the system. But uh, the, the, the uh, uh, monetary uh, policy that uh, came in and stepped into uh, the void here to cre create liquidity only went so far. And while it's helped the real estate lending side of it all, um, which is driving uh, real estate equity transactions, it didn't go very far as it relates to uh, real estate itself with uh, only the AAAs on a short-term basis being qualified for the TALF, and the TALF kind of came late. So a lot of triage around that, and I think that we need, uh, you know, a healthy debt market ultimately to um, come back to um, some sort of uh, uh, new normal, if you will. Um, and then you've got the other end of the spectrum, which are these discretionary sellers who are the like-to-have, who don't, don't want to transact in an environment um, of distress. Uh, with um, assets that they feel are uh, more durable um, relative to the marketplace and ultimately um, don't want to take the discount. So there's a significant bid-ask spread. Um, and most of those discretionary sellers are, you know, in the office space, um, the industrial space. I want to talk a little bit about life science, which we haven't covered here, but I think is going to be an important part of what we see coming out of all this. And then the high-end uh, multifamily space um, uh, at the end of the day. And they're waiting for the fog to lift a bit before um, um, ultimately deciding to transact. Uh, the reference earlier that both Ralph and Alan made um, that people are trying to figure out um, uh, from, from the demand side is actually who's paying rent. Um, and so we, we uh, tried to get through April uh, 1st through 7th through 10th. Uh, to figure out who's paying rent on the multifamily side, just to uh, give you a sense as to how how there is a dispersion. The Class A um, uh, multifamily uh, was in the mid to upper 90s in terms of the number of tenants that were paying rent. Uh, the Class B were in the low to mid 90s, and then the BC um, um, uh, begins to drop off quite precipitously. And it's really location driven and the nature of the tenant driven. Um, as was pointed out, the retention is a little bit of the bright spot uh, because occupancy is, uh, is staying in place as people are not in a position to move. Now, we also think that uh, the GSEs or the government-sponsored entities, the Fannie Mae's, the Jenny Mae's, and, and the like, will be a very liquid um, debt market, ultimately, um, albeit with uh, different underwriting. Uh, going forward, but we think that um, that will help heal that market. Uh, but really, what people are focused on are who are um, you know who's paying rent, um, so that they can understand how uh, not only returns are, but what debt service can be. The second uh, area, and you pointed this out earlier, which is in the logistics space. 
Um, we're seeing, you know, someone like an Amazon take 20 to 25 million square feet in this COVID period of time going to 50. Those are extraordinary accelerated demands. A Walmart, some of the uh, some of the uh, groceries, uh, grocery stores, and the like, um, who are looking for um, space. So there's huge demand. Um, the the collections for most of these um, big box, in particular, focused industrial um, owners, uh, was in the high 90s uh, relative to it, and there were there were requests um, from smaller tenants um, and tenants that were maybe more vulnerable to um, yeah, dislocation in its market, whether it was a resort um, and or a gaming type of uh, uh, submarket. Um, there was a little bit more of that. Uh, relative to um, what they were um, ultimately focused on. And then um, in the uh, um, office space, um, in particular, the high-end office uh, uh, owners uh, were in the 90s. Um, and then as you get into um, collections of, of tenant sizes and smaller uh, non-credit tenants, uh, we saw a significant drop-off, and some collections reported as low as 60%. Um, you know, relative to some of those uh, um, uh, office tents themselves. And there is a lot of concern around co-working, which we talked about, um, and um, um, travel and leisure industry tenants, uh, and then surprisingly some of the smaller law firms um, at the end of the day. And really, um, as I would say, uh, very market-specific. But the co-working exposure is um, uh, definitely um, something that people are really focused on. And then I'm going to bring up something that, uh, that isn't measured as much because there's only a couple uh, public companies that have this life science piece, and it, 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 it wasn't, it's not a fad. It's a trend, and it's a trend that's been building, and it's been building because the science and technology are beginning to converge in a, in a way that um, we uh, are just beginning to see. But if you look at those tenants, except for some smaller tenants and maybe retail, when you look at some of these public companies that will be reporting in the next um, seven to 10 days, you'll see that virtually 100% of collections were received um, uh, around these uh, particular tenants. Um, and that's a very, very good sign. It's a, it doesn't have a lot of scale at this moment in time. But I think there were 27 technology companies that actually invested in life science companies that were pre-COVID uh, types of um, investments that were uh, ultimately um, made and, and certainly anxious to uh, participate in this uh, post-COVID, which, uh, again, will, will be, I think, very, very um, um, geography-specific. And um, when we start talking about geography, and again, both Ralph and Alan referred to it, which was you know, these knowledge markets or innovation markets where you've got talent, and this is what we think will be the big winner um, throughout all this, notwithstanding the announcement by Alphabet, I believe that's a pause, not a, uh, uh, not a stop. Um, you are ultimately um, being very um, specific around how to be in locations where the talent pool is there and whether it's life science or technology or any of the innovation markets, um, there's a great desire to be where the talent is. And I think that that's where um, a lot of the big winners will be. And in the hospitality side, um, obviously just devastating um, relative to it all. And I've, I've uh, shared with you a little bit about what those um, 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 challenges are. It takes about 42 to 45% of a full-service hotel to break even prior to debt service. 
And so until we can get back to that, it's going to be a long, uh, a long, long haul. And then on retail, as uh, a good friend of ours uh, put it, it's a very, very, uh, it's an industry that was like a very, very elderly person who uh, had multiple pre-existing um, conditions. And the fact of the matter is, is that uh, we we were over-retailed as a country, um, and uh, um, this has taken what was a probably a five-year trend in terms of de-retailing um, so many of these uh, locations and accelerating it into a matter of months as opposed to a matter of years. And uh, the, the collections uh, in that space um, were anywhere from 5 to 15% in the top tier, um, hoping to get uh, into uh, the low 20s. And we think that that's going to be specifically off uh, going into uh, the, next, uh, in the next month. So that's uh, a little bit about why, um, but it is, uh, it's driven from both sides, the demand side and the capital side, and we believe that it's going to require some healing on the financing side in order to um, um, create, a, in essence, a new normal uh, market. Uh, at the end of the day. Roy, before we got started, I had briefly mentioned uh, Office Space, and on page 21, we've actually put a, uh, the cover of a book by Susan Pinker that talks about how important face-to-face contact is in terms of people being healthier, happier, and smarter. And uh, Alan made a reference to wanting to be back in the office and having that interaction with his colleagues. What is your view of the impact of COVID on Office Space, given both the mixed requirements of social distancing, but then also we've seen people be so productive at home. Yeah, I I, I think it's an open-ended question, and uh, we're we're candidly in the midst of making some of uh, literally some of these decisions right now. When we were going to a more dense um, kind of bench-like uh, uh, open space plan, um, and what we're revisiting is kind of what what do our people want and and ultimately when we do go back we'll go back in phases with uh, various teams working on and off um, both uh, from home and and in space and one of the questions uh, that's come out of some conversations with people in the um, space planning business uh, that uh, are working with some of these technology companies is finding flexible space i.e. we may go to something that uh, maybe almost as much square footage, uh, but more distant um, and different work patterns. And the question is, is it separation or density? And I think it's a, a really an open-ended question. I think that there's some generational uh, aspects to it, uh, and this mobility clearly will drive, I think, the next generation into thinking um, and, and feeling more comfortable uh, working uh, remotely. Um, but I... Um, you know, it's it's tough to judge human nature when you've got somebody of my generation, you know, kind of responding to it versus somebody of another generation. That's what we're trying to at least nail um, significantly. And having said that, um, again, one of the one of the things that we're seeing is so a lot of these uh, startups that uh, had VC backing, um, you know, the the reins were pulled in, and some of these startups are beginning to spit back uh, sublease space. Most importantly, they're spitting back talent. And uh, notwithstanding Alphabet's comment, um, there are other um, technology companies, and perhaps even them, that uh, underlying all this are picking up talent um, uh, along the way. And again, the big winner, I think, is going to be life science technology, because I think that the the software talent um, um, that left some of these big companies 
um, has a motivation and a desire to do something good in the world and to have a purpose uh, beyond just the work they do. And I think that that's going to um, ultimately uh, drive a lot of those decisions. Great. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Uh, Alan, Ralph, and Roy, thanks so much for all that information. This podcast was recorded on April 24th, 2020. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.